Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Since 2015, Donald Trump has steadily amped up the violence of his political rhetoric. For example, on the campaign trail back in February of 2016, a fight broke out between a Trump supporter and an anti-Trump protester at a Las Vegas campaign rally. After police broke up the fight, Trump said, You know what I hate? There's a guy totally disruptive, throwing punches, We're not allowed to punch back anymore. I love the old days. You know what they used to do to guys like that when they were in a place like this? They'd be carried out on a stretcher, folks. A few minutes later, Trump added that he would like to, quote, punch the protester in the face. Well, that was several years ago. But month after month, Trump has escalated. Talk about jailing opponents, joking about shooting looters, professing his love for the mob that violently attacked Congress on January 6th. And late last month, Trump posted a screed on Truth Social, his social media network. And in it, he excoriated General Mark Milley for making a phone call to reassure Chinese leaders after the January 6th Capitol attack. In fact, the call was explicitly authorized by Trump administration officials. But in his recent post, Donald Trump railed that Milley's call was, quote, an act so egregious that in times gone by, the punishment would have been death. Now, Trump's most ardent supporters quickly embraced and repeated the former president's unprecedented call to execute a former chair of the nation's Joint Chiefs of Staff. These are Trump supporters just this past weekend at an Iowa rally. Treason is treason. There's only one cure for treason. Now what is that? Being put to death. Treason is treason, and we used to execute or or imprison people for it. And all the treasonous actions I see now in this day and age is just throw it underneath the rug. I know uh, Trump's feelings about uh, Mark Milley, and I agree. Why was he not in a, on, uh, before a firing squad within a month? Those Trump supporters appeared on MSNBC. At what point does this constant avalanche of political rhetoric, violent political rhetoric, effectively normalize actual political violence? Are we already there? Consider what happened just on September 28th in Española, New Mexico. Police identified 23-year-old Ryan Martinez, seen wearing a teal jacket and a red Make America Great Again hat, as the man who clashed with demonstrators at a rally in New Mexico, celebrating a decision by authorities to postpone the installation of a statue commemorating Juan de Oñate, a Spanish conquistador with a brutal history. The scuffle, captured on cell phone video, takes place seconds before the suspect draws a handgun and pulls the trigger. (laughs) Hitting a Native American man from Washington in the torso. That report from CBS News. Well, Esteban Candelaria joins us. He's a staff reporter for the Albuquerque Journal, and he's in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Esteban, welcome to the show. Hi, Magna. Thanks for having me. 
So I have watched that cell phone uh, video of the shooting several times, and I wonder if, you know, in order to be as factual as we possibly can, if we can just describe specifically what happened. Um, what sort of started the scuffle between um, the suspect and uh, the the protesters who were there uh, protesting against a, a statue being put up in Española? Absolutely. So um, there's a couple of different angles um, of that video. There's a few different people who uh, took videos. um, And from what law enforcement and witnesses have said, um, it looks like Ryan Martinez was making an effort to get to a shrine that was set up um, at the pedestal where the Oñate statue was supposed to be relocated um, uh, all throughout that day. People had said that he was antagonizing people and walking around with another uh, with a group of several other men who were wearing MAGA hats and um, had just basically been uh, been there to start uh, provoking people. Mm -hmm. And um, so that culminated to a point where he's trying to reach this shrine and try to make runs at the shrine um, and a group of men. who have been described as just sort of peacekeepers um, are trying to block him from from getting to that shrine. Mm-hmm. Now, so this is where the cell phone video that I've seen shows that group of men um, scuffling with Martinez uh, to keep him away from the shrine. Then Martinez actually manages to clear a somewhat low knee height or maybe hip height concrete wall, it looks like. Um, so there, he's he's managed to physically separate himself uh, from, you know, those uh, those those other men who were trying to keep him from the shrine. He could have at that point just turned and walked away back to his car, but he doesn't. Instead, he it seems like very quickly he pulls out a weapon, a gun that was uh, hidden under his shirt, you know, tucked into his belt. Is that right? That's right. And authorities make a note that the men don't try to pursue him um, over the wall. Um, he he sort of breaks free and they stay on one side of the wall. And um, in the next few seconds, he pulls a handgun from uh, his waistband and, and shoots one shot and hits um, Jacob Johns, a Native American activist uh, from Washington. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now, Jacob Johns uh, did not die. Do we know his uh, uh, his um, status, his medical status right now? Yeah, the last I had heard, he has uh, he was in stable condition, but wasn't out of the woods yet. Um, he had been flown to the Uni- University of New Mexico Hospital for surgery um, to for his wounds to be treated. He was shot in the upper abdomen, um, mm. and so um, pretty serious, um, but. The last I had heard, he was in stable condition. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about what you've reported regarding um, Ryan Martinez. For example, um, in the Albuquerque Journal, you, you have you you co-reported a story that that looked into Martinez's um, social media and what he's posted online. How would you describe uh, his online presence? Yeah, he uh, throughout his Facebook page. I mean, there, there's lots of photos of him. Wearing uh, what appears to be the same uh, Make America Great Again hat, um, he spreads um, election fraud um, 
conspiracies and um, has a lot to say about um, Joe Biden um, and um, uh, the quote unquote Chinese Communist Party. Um, he also, according to a pretrial detention motion filed uh, this week, um, has a history of um, uh, violent rhetoric. Um, he's made threatening remarks to the Federal Reserve, um, for which the FBI at one point investigated him and um, did not find any um, uh, they, they did not find any tangible threats to a person um but uh but he has been on law enforcement's radar um before mm, okay so obviously with the ownership and wearing of the red make america great again hat he's demonstrated his support for donald trump and or trumpism do we know if he's been to any trump rallies or anything like that yet I, to them, to my knowledge, I don't know if okay. he has been uh, to any Trump rallies necessarily. Okay, um, but his social media, as you're reporting, seems to um, evince at least a, a, a like-mindedness between um, what Martinez believes and some of the uh, the things that Donald Trump has championed and talked about. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, his Facebook intro is uh, Trump one, um, and again, he he's wearing his MAGA hat all over the place and. Um, shares photos of the former president. Um, and so I think that that's fair to say. Okay. Now, we cannot go as far as to say Donald Trump caused Ryan Martinez to, um, you know, pull the gun out from under his belt and pull the trigger. Um, but that's not exactly how uh, normalizing violence works. So we're going to analyze a little bit more about that later. But Esteban, what is particularly disturbing about this story is that this is not the first time a shooting has occurred over this very same statue. So just quickly tell us, remind us who um, the statue is of and why it's so controversial. Yeah, so the statue is of uh, conquistador uh, Juan de Oñate, um, who in the 1500s um, came and colonized uh, significant swaths in New Mexico. Um, and um, to be clear, it is actually a, a separate statue. In Albuquerque, um, in 2020, there was a, um, uh, there were peaceful protests to remove a, a different statue um, of Juan de Oñate, um, who has been a very controversial figure um, for, for a long time. Um, on one hand, some people see him as something of a founding father um, in terms of, of settling New Mexico, um, but many others um, uh, see him as having a much more bloody history, um, and that being uh, largely due to his uh, treatment of people from the Pueblo of Acoma, um, who he really violently um retaliated against uh after an uprising yeah. and um uh killed a lot of people um maimed a lot of people and enslaved a lot of people um mm. so there's been a lot of tension um over this statue and how to remember oñate um and uh the one that this uh particular shooting was over um was over a separate one in um uh Rio Riva county um, i see 
And so uh, same same conquistador, but two separate statues. And there were that's right. There, and there's been tensions and violence around both of those statues. Well, Esteban, um, I know that you're going to be continuing your reporting uh, on what happened in um, Española and. Uh, the now charging and perhaps eventual trial of Ryan Martinez. But thank you so much for joining us today. And we'd like to uh, stay in touch with you as uh, news keeps developing there in New Mexico. Absolutely. Thank you, Midna. Esteban Candelaria, staff reporter for the Albuquerque Journal. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to talk more about this connection between violent rhetoric and actual political violence when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we are asking if Donald Trump's continuously escalating violent political rhetoric is or has normalized the the validity of actual political violence in this country. Here's a couple more examples of some things that uh, Trump has said uh, fairly recently, actually. Instead of participating in last week's Republican debate, Trump spoke at a truck truck parts manufacturing plant outside of Detroit, Michigan. And he said becoming a politician has forced him to, quote, beat up on his enemies. How will we rescue the auto manufacturing in the United States? Let's remember you got to remember how we got here. For decades and decades, and I've been talking about this subject for 12 years, long before I ever thought of becoming a politician. How good was that? That was, that's a lot of fun. I could have had the easiest, nicest life, L. I would have had the nicest, softest life instead. I have to beat these lunatics up all day long, every day. Every day, lunatics. That's Trump last week. Here he is at a California Republican Party's fall convention in Anaheim also last week. He talked about how shoplifters and looters would be dealt with if he were to be president again. And we will immediately stop all of the pillaging and theft. Very simply, if you rob a store, you can fully expect to be shot as you are leaving that store. Shot. 
Well, joining us now is Mary McCord. She's legal director at the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection and visiting professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. From 2016 to 2017, she was acting assistant attorney general for national security at the Department of Justice. Mary McCord, welcome back to On Point. It's nice to be here, Magna. Thank you. So I understand that you actually happened to be in New Mexico uh, on September 28th when that shooting in Española happened that we talked about with Esteban um, in the first segment of the program. Is that right? Were you just sort of incidentally in New Mexico? Well, not really incidentally. Obviously, I wasn't there knowing anything about this, that the shooting would be happening. But the reason I was there is that my organization was hosting a two-day convening on political violence. Um, We brought together local, state, and federal leaders in the election space, as well as public safety and law enforcement space. We brought together community organizers and activists, some of who work in voting rights and some who work to make sure that the communities they serve have opportunities to participate in democratic processes. And this two-day convening includes threat briefings from researchers who spend Uh, their time in the online extremism milieu and also study offline real-world extremism, researchers who study the impact of extremism on democracies, a deep dive that that my organization presents into the First and Second Amendment, what they protect and what they do not protect, and the sharing of experiences of those who are in attendance, many of whom have suffered threats themselves um, and related either to their... uh, confirmation of the results of the 2020 election, Mm. which of course uh, was very controversial to those who uh, believe the election was stolen. And some who, for example, were received threats because maybe they're a member or an ally of the LGBTQ community. So literally, as I was giving the closing remarks, closing this convening of about 85 people, that's when we learned about the shooting just, you know, miles up the road. Wow. Okay. So clearly the fact that there's so much intense um, interest and need to have these convenings and discussions about the potential for political violence means that the people who are paying attention are concerned. So let's let's focus for another minute, if we can, on what happened in Española, because of course, and, you know, I just want to stress to listeners that no one is saying Donald Trump made Ryan Martinez allegedly do what he's alleged to have done. That logic would not stand up in a court of law. But that's not exactly how a normalization of um, of politically violent rhetoric works in changing what is deemed to be acceptable um, you know, behavior in real life. So how would you analyze, Mary, uh, the fact that... Um, Martinez is known to have been wearing a MAGA hat. That's that's been captured on film in about ten thousand pictures. But uh, you know what Esteban was reporting that um, Martinez had on you know his social media and how that might relate to what happened on September twenty eighth. Well, there's no question that Donald Trump and actually many of his close allies have been really on a trend over the last number of years, really going back even to the 2016 campaign, to normalize violence. And we see it, of course, in 
the you know just in this last week we've seen Donald Trump lashing out against the judge in his civil fraud trial in New York City the the attorney general there uh, we've seen him lash out against prosecutors in the criminal cases judges in the criminal cases potential witnesses including Mark Milley who you spoke about in your in your introduction and then of course these recent attacks on uh, you know making fun of the attack on Paul Pelosi Nancy Pelosi's husband and suggesting pro- uh, shoplifters should be shot. But this is not new. Mm. And in fact, you know, relating again to New Mexico, um, people feel emboldened by Trump's giving permission to not only say violent and incendiary things, but to their to their point of view, it's permission to actually engage in acts of violence. And we can just go back to 2020, the summer of 2020. Your previous guest, uh, the reporter Esteban, mentioned that this was not the first controversy in New Mexico involving the statute of Juan de Oñate. And in, in the summer of 2020, after George Floyd was murdered, as I think everyone will recall, racial justice demonstrations broke out around the country and, in fact, around the world. Mm-hmm. And one of those happened in Albuquerque uh, over, a, over a protest suggesting that the statute there should be brought down. What happened then, I would say, in response to Trump generally saying that these racial justice protests involved anarchists and rioters who were bent on looting, etc., that was permission for groups like in New Mexico and unlawful private militia to deploy to that statute to try to protect it from the protesters who wanted to bring it down. That The violence there escalated to the point where a person was shot there as well. Mm-hmm. So we now have two times that people feel emboldened, I would say, by Trump's rhetoric, his giving them permission to go out there and engage in violence, intimidation, and threats twice in New Mexico over the same Spanish conquistador. It's really pretty remarkable. And we've seen it so many other places. So what would you say, though, to um, the notion that I presume many people have, which is that, you know, this is just tough guy talk, right? It's part of his carnival barker shtick. I mean, we heard it in that uh, uh, in the clip that I played a little bit earlier. He, he, you know, he talks about before I was a politician, I didn't have to do this, that and the other. Ha ha ha. I mean, there's kind of this you know, elbow jabbing frat boy jokiness to it. But then it, and it culminates in the, you know, um, I want to beat people up. Uh, again, this was the same justification that was given to the Access Hollywood tape so many years ago that right. it was just locker room talk. That, right. you know, is there anything to that? that so therefore, perhaps we shouldn't be, um, be so uh, pressingly concerned about it. No, I think we should be pressingly concerned because we've seen over and over again, not only that he engages in this rhetoric, but look at how it's expanded. Back in 2016, 2017, we didn't have other elected members of Congress engaging in the same sort of violent rhetoric and and sort of pandering to paramilitary groups. But over the ensuing years, you know how elected members of Congress, you know, putting out memes uh, of uh, about their own colleagues in Congress that suggest acts of violence toward them. You have talk about civil war by elected officials, and you have m- multiple occasions of human beings, Americans here on the ground, actually acting on the types of things that President, that former President Trump and his allies are saying. And that goes back to, you know, 
even before 2020, even before Stop the Steal, when when Trump would talk about a Latino invasion across the southern border and the need, you know, that that's infecting our way of life, we had unlawful private militias deployed to the border, uh, armed and 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 capturing uh, migrants and detaining them unlawfully. So there is a real world impact. And you know, if we just take in the in recent time, you know, in 2020, of course, we had. Uh, militias deploying to state houses, you know, forcibly and violently storming those state houses in opposition to COVID-related health measures after the former president, of course, he was the president at the time, denigrated the officials who were engaging in those public health measures. And, you know, more recently, we see after the search, for example, last year at Mar-a-Lago and Trump's attacks on the FBI, we see a person violently attacked and and try to commit an attack against an FBI office in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we can um, understate the significance of this. I will, on a hopeful note, say there are researchers that do polling. I do think it is a minority of Americans who believe that violence is justified, political violence is justified. That minority, unfortunately, has an outsized voice because they are so active on social media and because the former president himself continues to sort of agitate the violence. But most Americans in most polling really do not believe that violence, including using a firearm or shooting someone, is justified for political purposes. And those are the voices I think that really do need to get elevated. Uh Uh-huh. Well, so first of all, let me play a couple of examples of how um, Trumpian violent political rhetoric, as you point out, Mary, has spread beyond Donald Trump himself to other either high-profile political people or actual uh, political leaders. For example, this is Arizona Republican Carrie Lake in June speaking at a Republican convention in Columbus, Georgia. Now, this was in response to, again, as you mentioned, Mary, the indictment against Trump for retaining classified government records. So, Carrie Lake said she and other Republicans would stand up in defense of Donald Trump. If you want to get to President Trump, you're going to have to go through me and you're going to have to go through 75 million Americans just like me. And I'm going to tell you, yep, most of us are card-carrying members of the NRA. That's not a threat. That's a public service announcement. Arizona's Carrie Lake in June. Now, here is an actual piece of tape from the 2024 campaign trail. Because at a New Hampshire campaign stop in early August, Florida governor and Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis DeSantis used very specific imagery how he would reduce the size of the federal workforce if elected president. And then on bureaucracy, um, you know, we're going to have all these deep state people, you know, we're going to start slitting throats on day one um, and be ready to go. You're going to see a huge, huge uh, um, uh, outcry because Washington wants to protect its own. But at the end of the day, this is a a city that's failed this country. That was Ron DeSantis in New Hampshire in August. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Now, Mary, 
I also heard you say specifically that um, you you feel hopeful because the actual number of Americans who you know, might feel that it's justified, that violence is justified um, in the pursuit of political ends is very small. But I wonder what we mean by small here, because I was reading some research from Robert Pape, who I know you know well, um, and he has been you know, fielding surveys for quite some time about, about how Americans feel about political violence. And in a May 2023 survey, he found um, that if he extrapolates the, uh, uh, the results from his survey group, which was more than 8,000 respondents, that extrapolating from that, about 16 million Adults agree that the use of force is justified to even prevent the prosecution of Donald Trump. You know, 16 million plus or minus a percent, a couple percent in the um, uh, margin of error still seems like a tremendous number, Mary. It, it is a tre- tremendous number. And the, what I, you know, really mean to say is by percentages, right, it's a smaller percentage than those who don't believe in that type of political violence. But still, when you look at the population of the United States, that's still a remarkable number and a very scary number. And I would say one of the things that's the most difficult for law enforcement to pre- pre- prevent is that lone wolf actor, kind of like the shooter we were just talking about up in Española. Um, You know, what we've seen since January 6th is sort of a move away from massive um, violence demonstrations like we saw on January 6th at the Capitol. I think the impact of more than a thousand prosecutions and imprisonment sentences for many of those people has dissuaded this sort of national uh, coalescence in a violent way to come out in public and things. And we've seen the crowds at Trump's arraignments, for example, be paltry compared to what he was looking for and called for. But what we've seen is a decentralized, localized, insidious creep of violence um, and paramilitarism into our politics at that local level. So it's school board meetings that are being disrupted by extremists and even school board members being pushed out by threats and intimidation, election officials pushed out by threats and intimidation, county boards taken over. And in fact, um, and then, of course, a lot of election deniers uh, who, including Carrie Lake, who herself seems very, very only thinly veiled, if it's, if veiled at all, uh, you know, stoke, stoking violence. We've seen this play out across the country. And then at the same time, we see lone actors, the woman who called and made a death threat against Judge Tanya Chuck and the uh-huh. judge in the D.C. district court case. So those things are really hard to guard against. And that's why you're right. The numbers that Robert Pape has and other researchers have, even though it's a small percentage of Americans or a, a, a minority of Americans, that can still be very, very dangerous. And, you know, this is the This is the thing that happens in failing democracies and fledgling democracies where violence, you know, is something that is espoused by the leadership. There are alliances sometimes that then develop between leadership and paramilitary organizations and and. You know, at some point, those paramilitary organizations or paramilitary actors become the leaders themselves. And we're not to that point yet. But if you look back at uh, Stop the Steal and even before the election in 2020, you see, you know, Mr. Trump and people around him like Roger Stone and Michael Flynn. Those two people were actually using members of a a paramilitary Mm -hmm. group, the Oath Keepers, as their security 
uh, candidates like Marjorie Taylor Greene using paramilitary organizations, armed people with no authority whatsoever under federal or state law to be a military organization. You see them protecting our elected officials. Well, Mary McCord, hang on for just a moment, because when we come back, we're going to uh, talk with a noted expert on authoritarianism about examples around the world of nations that were just slightly ahead of the United States in this perhaps failing democracy track that you're talking about and what has happened there and what, if anything, we can do to pull out of it to stop the amplification of politically violent rhetoric spilling over into actual violence. So that's what we'll talk about when we come back. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and I just want to give everyone a quick heads up about something that's dropping in our podcast feed tomorrow, because it will be Friday, which means it's Jackpot Day. That's what we're starting to call it now. It's our new special series of conversations with On Point's news analyst, Jack Beatty, about this historic moment we're living through and um, news stories that need uh, deserve more attention but this week, Jack's going to talk about the big news of the week, and that, of course, is the removal of a sitting Speaker of the House for the first time in U.S. history is what just happened to Kevin McCarthy. So Jack's going to bring his very unique analysis and historical perspective to um, the current state of the United States House of Representatives. So if you haven't already, subscribe to our On Point podcast feed to get our weekly Friday drop of Jack's special podcast. Today, we are talking about Donald Trump's ever-escalating violent political rhetoric, and if that is normalizing political violence, actual political violence in this country. We're going to talk to an expert of, on authoritarianism in just a minute, but we also reached out to Brian Kloss. He's an associate professor in global politics at University College London, and he's been following Trump's rhetoric for years. Um, and he, you know, especially remembers examples such as what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, when Trump talked about finding good, very good people on both sides. There was wall-to-wall coverage in the news media about that. But Kloss says things have changed, that Trump's violent rhetoric is simply not covered in the media as it once was. In the last like week and a half, Trump has effectively floated the idea of executing America's top general. He has made a joke about an assassination attempt on Nancy Pelosi's husband, where he was almost beaten to death with a hammer in the skull. Uh, he's suggested that you should shoot looters. And he has also amplified a series of you know, conspiracy theories that in the past would have gotten lots and lots of, of press. So you have all these sort of calls to violence that exist in what I call the banality of crazy, this sort of numbing effect, where because Trump with such regularity says things that would be enormous scandals in normal politics, we have just sort of grown used to them. 
And Kloss says there's a grave danger in being lulled by that banality of crazy, as he says, that growing used to Trump's violent political rhetoric is dangerous. The big danger, to my mind, is that there's an asymmetry here in how the media treats Joe Biden, where the old rules still apply, and how the media treats Donald Trump, where he's given a free pass simply because everything else he does is so outlandish that the slightly less outlandish stuff doesn't get covered uh, nearly as much. You know, I'd, I'd encourage people to do a quick little experiment on their own. The Commander Biden story, which is the story of Joe Biden's dog biting a Secret Service agent, type that into Google News, then type in Trump and shoplifters into Google News. You will find that there are about three or four times as many stories about Joe Biden's dog than there are about Trump literally saying that he should use extrajudicial killing to deal with people who are guilty of petty crimes. And this is a person who, you know, in a year and a half may well be the commander in chief and the president of the United States. To me, there's this, this grotesque asymmetry where because of the numbness, um, we're simply not waking up to the calls for violence and they are very dangerous. And I think there's a serious risk they will lead to real world uh, killings heading into the 2024 election and beyond. That's Brian Kloss, Associate Professor in Global Politics at University College London. Mary McCord is also with us today, and now I'd like to bring Ruth Ben-Ghiat into the conversation. She's a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and author of Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. Uh, Ruth, welcome back to On Point. Thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, So I want to ask you if you can walk us through um, what has happened in, in another country when violent political rhetoric came so consistently consistently from top leaders. There are many examples, but the one that really pops to mind right now for me is the Philippines. Um, and uh, strongman Rodrigo Duterte, who spent years talking about, you know, some people need killing. Is that an apt example? Yeah, that's a good example. Uh, and there's a parallel with Trump because... Um, if you want to know how to spot a strong man on the rise, while they're still campaigning for office, they start to associate themselves with violence and they start uh, their campaigns to change the way people see violence as something positive, necessary, even patriotic. So Duterte, this is not what normal uh, democratic politicians would do. So Duterte came and started talking about how how bloody everything would be. And at one point he said to Filipinos, don't vote for me because if I win, it's going to be bloody. And and this was the equivalent of Trump saying in January 2016, you know, I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and I wouldn't lose any followers. And in that case, Trump was saying very clearly to Americans, he didn't have the nomination yet. He was saying, I, I, I am associated with violence. I believe in violence and I will be loved by you because of my violence. So, so in both these cases, um, you know, what transpired was, was a kind of, uh, you know, signaling and, and using extremists, normalizing extremism. And the other thing about this comparison you raise is once somebody like that is, is in the system, um, even if they leave, uh, the the appetite is there for um, for that kind of repression, and in the Philippines case, <clears throat> excuse me, you already had Marcos, mm-hmm. uh, a dictator. But what happened after Duterte, who was seen as a kind of a loose cannon, uh, you had the more quote disciplined extremists. You had the return of the Marcos family. 
Mm. So once they come into the system, and in our case, we have Trump, it bequeaths people like DeSantis who think that to get ahead, you have to talk about slitting throats on day one if you become president. Mm -hmm. We should note that um, on the ground in the Philippines, Duterte's violent rhetoric really did explicitly translate to like a, a spasm of extrajudicial killings in the Philippines. Is that right, Ruth? Yes. And and that's, again, that's a different history because they had a, a long repressive dictatorship and martial law. Yep. And, um, but th this is also, you know, in, in where you, and, and, uh, Duterte had been the mayor, uh, and used these methods on the local level. So you yes. also have that and you have that with Modi in India, he had done repression at the local level and then they come and they scale it up. But in this case too, uh, they are very clear about what they're going to do, and they talk about violence a lot. Yeah. Um, and then that encourages extremists, whatever they look like in that country, um, to band together with the leader, and it normalizes violence. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you pointing out the differences uh, between sort of the state of Filipino democracy, uh, put that in quotes, right, under the uh, Marcos family and then uh, Duterte versus the United States. Because, Mary, that does bring to mind, is there another reason to be sort of less uh, apocalyptic and more hopeful? Because, you know, we still do have in the United States um, perhaps somewhat weakened, but relatively strong institutions. You know, there is still the judiciary. There are still the election officials on the ground in all 50 states who stood up to the kind of threats that we're talking about uh, in 2020 to be sure, to assure that the elections in their states um, happened legally uh, and fairly, no matter what Donald Trump said. You know, we still have... I don't know if you want to call it a functioning Congress, but we still have a system of government in, in Washington that shambles along trying to do what it can do. It's not quite at all a Marco-style dictatorship at right now. That's absolutely true. And I think that's one of the reasons, frankly, that you see Donald Trump, you know, railing against these institutions right now, because since he has been out of office, the institutions have sort of like, you know, gone back to a little bit more of a sense of normalcy, at least the executive branch institutions have. And we've seen the system of justice, you know, working its way through. We've seen the investigations, not only into the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, uh, in terms of the rioters, but also those who may have been more responsible for the entire um, election fraud lie. But also, you know, to, to the extent that people might well think will might buy into uh, Donald Trump's calling that political persecution, the same Department of Justice has investigated the sitting president, Joe Biden, and is investigating and is prosecuting the sitting president's uh, son, Hunter Biden. So we see a Department of Justice that is working to investigate criminal offenses and bring cases where they can be supported with the evidence. And we see the judiciary system also working and judges, you know, telling Mr. Trump, you know, you are like any other defendant. Now we can argue about whether that's really the case, whether he's really getting treated like other defendants, but that they're going to ensure a fair trial, but they're not going to let it turn into a carnival uh, atmosphere. And we've seen the recent gag order by the Manhattan uh, judge in the civil 
fraud case and right now pending before Judge Tanya Chutkin in D.C. in the federal criminal case related to January 6th is a government's uh, request for limitations on what Mr. Trump can say yes. about disparaging witnesses and jurors and prosecutors, etc. So the systems are functioning. And I think that that is very different than the Philippines. But boy, that is that is exactly why Trump is attacking them so, so um, vociferously. And I think one of the things that we need to worry about the most if he were to actually win the election is who in this second term would be his attorney general? Who would be willing to take that risk knowing that he has said very publicly he will weaponize the Department of Justice, he will go after his political enemies? Uh, You know, who will take that position? Who will take a position as Secretary of Defense or Homeland Security? And I think this is where uh, it's really existential right now Mm. that 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 not happen. Mm. Well, I want to... uh share some <clears throat> thoughts that have come from President Joe Biden and General Mark Milley just fairly recently in response to um, this violent political rhetoric we we're talking about, and of course, specifically the attack that Trump posted on Milley himself. So first of all, this is just last week, uh, and President Biden was in Arizona during a ceremony honoring the legacy of the late Senator John McCain. And Biden said he will not stand for political violence. Democracy means rejecting and repudiating political violence. Regardless of party, such violence is never, never, never acceptable in America. It's undemocratic. And it must never be normalized to advance political power. And democracy means respecting the institutions that govern a free society. President Joe Biden in Arizona last week. Also last week in Arlington, Virginia, now retiring U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff General Mark Milley, who we've mentioned many times this hour, asserted his allegiance is to the United States Constitution and not what he called, quote, a wannabe dictator. So again, this is after Trump said that uh, Milley in uh, other times, would have been executed for calling China during the final days of the Trump administration. We don't take an oath to a king or a queen or to a tyrant or a dictator. And we don't take an oath to a wannabe dictator. We don't take an oath to an individual. We take an oath to the Constitution and we take an oath to the idea that it's America and we're willing to die to protect it. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Ruth Ben-Ghiat, Mark Milley also followed up with quite an honest um, assessment of what might happen if Donald Trump wins a second term. He told The Atlantic this, quote, Trump will start throwing people in jail and I'd be at the top of the list, end quote. Is that a justified concern, Ruth? Uh, Absolutely. I think the reason that he's making that speech and the reason that um, that uh, President Biden is coming out several times, uh, you know, talking about we cannot normalize violence, is that Trump is uh, acting like all strong men when they face uh, prosecution or jail and they're desperate, all they have is violence. And Trump is actually actively using his uh, campaign as a radicalization vehicle. 
And this is why he kicked it off at Waco, Texas, a pilgrimage site for violent extremists. This is why he went to a gun shop. And, you know, a lot of the press got hung up on whether he could legally buy the gun. That's not the point. From a propaganda standpoint, he's telling his followers, if you want uh, to please me, you too will buy a gun and perhaps you'll use it. Mm. Um, So he is losing no opportunity, as well as Matt Gates, who showed up at the Iowa State Fair and, and said, oh, hello to everyone eating their corn dogs, and then says, oh, by the way, only through force will we bring change to Washington. Yeah. We only have a couple of seconds uh, left, less than a minute for both of you. But I want to end with this question because I don't want to behave as if it's a foregone conclusion that what might happen between now and, let's say, uh, the 2024 election is similar to what we've seen uh, with other weakening democracies. Is there anything, Mary, that you think, and and Ruth, both of you, I'll start with Mary, that can uh, wind back the corrosive effect of this politically violent rhetoric? Well, I do think it requires leaders uh, of both parties, but particularly the Republican Party, to denounce this violence and, you know, to pull away from Donald Trump. There certainly are some who have done that. Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger very famously as part of their uh, positions on the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. You know, people on on the Senate side have at various times said things uh, to support our democracy and distance themselves from this violence, but we're not seeing nearly enough of it Mm -hmm. at the federal level or the state level. Well, Ruth, um, you get the last 30 seconds here. Your thoughts on this? Yeah, I agree with what Mary said. We also need a massive mobilization of civil society. Uh, faith leaders need to, you know, talk about love, not hatred. And I'll, we also need to make an appeal to business because there's lots of evidence, empirical research, that political violence is not good for the economy, is not going to be good for their business, it's not good for anything. So these are the kinds of outreaches and conversations we need to have. Well, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history at New York University and author of Strongman Mussolini to the Present. She's also got a newsletter called Lucid on Substack. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us once again. It's a pleasure. And Mary McCord, legal director at the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection and visiting professor at Georgetown University Law Center. Mary McCord, thank you as always. Thank you for having me, Magna. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.